Well, good morning and happy Independence Day to everyone. How grateful we should all be that we can gather uh, so freely with so little fear of someone coming to try to disrupt the service or uh, to uh, attack us as enemies of the cross of Christ. And, and uh, that's just something that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't have want us to be cognizant of that, to pray for them, and uh, to be grateful for the Lord's blessings for us. I do want to uh, remind you, if you know anyone who's planning to attend the high precaution service at 4 o'clock, we'll be in the chapel, and uh, looking forward to being uh, with uh, that dear group of people as we worship and fellowship. Um, we're going to continue to do that at 4 p.m. as, as long as that's needed. Uh, we'll preach the morning message there. Uh, that's also the context in which we tape uh, the message for the radio program, and so we'll continue that at 4 o'clock as long as it's needed. Uh, but for the whole congregation, I want to really encourage you to be there, uh, be here, not there, here, uh, next week at 6 p.m. Uh, we're just going to have a wonderful time of fellowship, of prayer, time in the Word, uh, probably some Q&A and, and some other wonderful things. So be here uh, next week at 6 p.m. Well, last week we finished uh, what turned out to be a three-part study of John 20, 24 through 29, uh, which is, of course, the account of the Lord appearing to Thomas and his confession of faith that Jesus is both Lord and God. I thought about moving on to the next verses in John, but I decided I wanted to pause a little bit more on that topic of unbelief and belief and maybe to zoom out a little bit from the Gospel of John to look at a few other things that the Bible says about this topic, that what the Bible teaches about the battle between belief and unbelief. And in particular, I want to talk about the spiritual dimension of it. Scripture teaches that there is a spiritual battle for the souls of men that has been raging ever since Satan and a third of the angels rebelled against God. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's why you need to put on the full armor of God. There is a spiritual battle, and it is a battle for souls. And I want to take a couple weeks, this week and next, to look at the strategies used by both sides in that spiritual battle. This morning, we're going to look at three of the schemes that Satan uses to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And then next week, we'll look at three strategies which God uses to rescue and save sinners as he draws them to saving faith. So this week, looking at Satan schemes next week at God's strategies. In Ephesians 6, the passage we just read, Paul warned us about the schemes of the devil. Satan is a schemer. He has a deliberate strategy and tactics that he uses to carry that strategy out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, 
Paul talks about the danger of being taken advantage of by Satan. And then he says, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not unaware of his schemes. So both Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 2 tell us that Satan has a strategy. He's a tactician. And he is constantly scheming ways to do his diabolical work, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So this is a spiritual war. It is a spiritual war. Our enemy uh, is the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and what is at stake is the eternal destinies of each and every human being. Now, when we look at warfare, history tells us that military intelligence is vital for winning battles, for winning wars. In fact, uh, one of my sons was reading a book about George Washington, and there was a British general who said that Washington did not win by outfighting the British. He won by having better military intelligence. He had a better intelligence network, and so he was able to discern the strength of the enemy, where the enemy was, and what the enemy was trying to do, and then he could devise tactics to defeat them. If you know what the enemy's strategy is and what schemes he is devising, then you can devise a good counter strategy. You can have a good counter attack, and you can fight, and you can win. And so the good news is, as Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 2.11, is that we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. We're not unaware of them. We're not uninformed about them because God has revealed them to us in the pages of Scripture. The Bible is, as it were, our military intelligence manual. And so when we open it up, we get a briefing on the schemes and the tactics of the enemies and what we must do in order to win in order to be successful in the spiritual battle. So it's important to study our strategy manual so that we can fight and we can win. So I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to be looking at a number of different texts scattered throughout the Old and New Testaments. And these texts are going to reveal to us three of the most common schemes that the enemy uses against the souls of people. Those schemes could be summarized in three words, distract, deceive, and destroy. This is obviously a generalization, but I think that these three terms are a good summary of the multifaceted and varied schemes of the devil. He primarily uses tactics that are designed to distract, others that are designed to deceive, and then others that are designed to destroy. So let's begin by looking at what may be Satan's most common and his most effective scheme, which is to distract. Satan's schemes to distract people, not with always with sin and wickedness and evil, but rather with the superficial, with the shallow, and even with the silly. You see, he doesn't have to get your attention onto something evil in order to win. He just needs to get your attention off of the Lord, off of the Word of God, off of prayer, off of spiritual things. And he particularly uses this tactic of distraction with unbelievers. He wants to keep them from even contemplating the condition of their soul. 
In the classic movie, The Princess Bride, the hero has a battle of wits with the great Sicilian villain, Vicini. And at stake is the life of both the hero and the princess. Now the villain, Vicini, tries to win at one point by distracting the hero so that he can switch the positions of these cups that one of which is filled with poison, or so he thinks. Now this silly scheme, you know, he says, look over there, and the hero looks, and while the hero is distracted, he switches the cups, and he's chuckling because he thinks he's outsmarted the hero. Well, it was a silly scheme, and of course it didn't work in the context of the movie. Here's the sad thing. That same tactic does work in the context of real life. The sad reality is that the distraction tactic works on millions of people in real life. Millions of people lose the battle of wits against the devil simply because they are so easily distracted by the superficial, by the shallow, and even by the silly. I mean, here we are, right? Here's the reality. We are in a great struggle between good and evil where not just our lives but our eternal destinies are at stake and Satan can keep millions of people from even thinking about good and evil, even thinking about right and wrong, even thinking about heaven and hell and even thinking about their spiritual condition. And he can do so simply by keeping them sufficiently entertained sufficiently entertained. You know, it is a terrible thing to go to hell because you were deceived by false prophets or destroyed by sin. That's a terrible thing. But you know what a tragic thing would be? A tragic thing would be to go to hell because you were too busy watching cat videos on YouTube to ever give attention to the status of your soul. To ever really consider the condition of your soul and your eternal destiny. You were simply so distracted by the superficial, by the shallow, and even by the silly that you never even really thought about it. Scripture often talks about the danger of a distracted life. A life that is so focused on eating and drinking and being merry that that life waltzes and whistles all the way to hell. I want to read to you several passages that mention the danger of what Scripture calls an eat, drink, and be merry philosophy of life. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 22 and verse 12 is talking about the Lord's call to repentance. And he says, therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth, right? He has called you to repent. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine, And the people were saying, what? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me and said, surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts, right? So the Lord beckons them to repent 
they're distracted by eating and drinking and being merry and laughter and merriment. And they are sufficiently entertained to miss the call to repentance. And so the Lord's conclusion is, yes, you will remain unforgiven until you die. In Luke chapter 12, the Lord gives the parable of the rich man who stored up all this treasure and then said, Oh, soul, look, you have many good things now, so eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be demanded from you. What good will all of those things do you then? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. Paul is talking about the resurrection, and he's saying very clearly that if believers have hope for this life only, he says in in verse 19, we are of all men most to be pitied. Life for Christians was really hard, especially in that time. Paul himself was beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and went hungry and cold. It was in many ways a physically miserable life. And so he says, if we have hope in Christ for this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied because we've experienced all this physical misery for nothing. Then he says this in verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, look, if there was no afterlife, then this hedonistic philosophy of, hey, grab all the gusto while you can. You only go around once, so party while you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That philosophy would make sense if there was no afterlife. But if there is an afterlife, that philosophy makes no sense at all. And he affirms in 1 Corinthians 15, the dead are raised. The dead are raised. All of these passages point to the same truth. If this life is all there is, it makes sense to live it up. But since this life is not all there is, the eat, drink, and be merry approach to life is utter foolishness. It is spiritual stupidity. Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then loses his soul? When you look at our society, there are, of course, many who are being dragged down to hell by demonic ideologies, by temptations and immorality. But I think the majority of the perishing aren't being dragged down to hell at all. They're dining their way there. They're dating their way there, and they are dancing their way there. They're partying their way to hell. Now, I'm not saying that dining, dating, or dancing are wrong. Keep in mind, Satan doesn't have to shift your attention to something evil in order to win. He just has to shift your attention onto anything except for the gospel, anything except for Christ, anything except for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He simply has to distract you, and he can use neutral or even good things to do that. One of the most famous 
pieces of folklore in Europe is the story of the Pied Piper. There's a lot of different versions of the story, but they all describe the same basic thing. There's a group of children who become entranced and they dance and sing as they follow the Pied Piper out of town and to their doom. What's interesting is that a lot of historians believe that this story is based at least in part on a real event. The reason they believe that is because there's an inscription in the old town of Hamelin in Germany dated from 1602 that reads this, A.D. 1284 on the 26th of June, 130 children born in Hamelin were led out of the town by a piper wearing multicolored clothes. After passing near the Koppenberg, they disappeared forever. There's also an inscription in the town's records dated to 1384 that says, it has been 100 years since our children vanished. There's other pieces of evidence as well, including a description of a stained glass window from a building that uh, had stood in the earlier centuries. There's a 15th century manuscript which mentions this. There's five other documents which all agree that a large number of children from this town were lost on June 26th, 1284. Now, the date of June 26th is significant because it was the date of a major pagan festival that was celebrated by non-Christians in Europe during that time. And there's also a lot of different documentation from all over Europe that during this time there was a strange phenomenon occurring. Large groups of people would begin to dance in a delirious and entranced fashion, sometimes resulting in injury, death, or even them just walking out of town never to return. And several historical accounts from this era link this strange phenomenon to the spread of a strange pagan cult whose practitioners would use hypnotic manipulation techniques to whip people into an entranced frenzy of ecstatic dancing. And so there are at least some historians who believe that the story of the Pied Piper is actually based on a real tragedy that occurred when a pagan shaman deceived and led a large group of teens and children to their doom. Now, we, of course, don't ultimately know what happened and why, but I think the story of the Pied Piper provides a good illustration of this first scheme of the devil. It is simply to distract. It is destruction by distraction. He schemes to keep people's minds off of spiritual things and onto superficial, shallow, and silly things. The moment that someone begins to think about the condition of their soul, bing, the, you know, the notification will go off on their phone and there will be some funny cat video that will just simply divert their attention onto something frivolous and away from that which is so vitally important. So his first scheme is destruction by distraction. There's a second common scheme of Satan that scripture warns about over and over and over, and that is deception. Satan is a deceiver, and one of his schemes is to deceive people, and he deceives people with skepticism, with sophistry, and with superstition. If Satan can't distract people, if he can't keep them from thinking about spiritual things at all, then he wants to get them to think wrongly about spiritual things. He wants to deceive them. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. 
And he says when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, the devil's deception of unbelievers is described in a powerful way. He says, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Right? If he can't distract, he'll deceive. He'll just blind their minds. And in 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul warns that evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Right? Satan, the father of lies, puts forth deceptions and then those who are deceived pass on the deception. Deception is such a common tactic of Satan that the Bible sometimes simply calls him the deceiver. That's who he is and what he does. So there's three primary ways he attempts to deceive. That is through skepticism, sophistry, and superstition. And we've talked a lot about that first method, skepticism, in the past several weeks. So I'm not going to uh, make too many comments about it today other than just to read to you the Lord's summary of the skeptic's worldview. What does the Lord say about skepticism as a worldview? In Psalm 14, 1 through 3, it says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt they have committed abominable deeds, right? The skeptic has not so much an intellectual problem as a moral problem. He says in his heart there is no God and that is connected to the fact that they are corrupt and have committed abominable deeds. Satan uses skepticism, but he also uses sophistry to deceive people. What is sophistry? Well, Oxford defines sophistry as, quote, the use of fallacious arguments, especially with the intention of deceiving. Satan is a good liar. He's a professional liar. He's a high-level liar. He is an expert at making something sound academic and smart and deep and insightful, but wrong. He uses sophistry, the use of fallacious arguments with the intention to deceive. Merriam-Webster defines sophistry as, quote, subtly deceptive reasoning or argumentation. He is able to produce argumentation and reasoning that is difficult to discern error in, but the error is there, and he leads people astray with it. He's an expert at sophistry. He's really, really good at making wrong seem right and right seem wrong. The truth seem like error and the error seem like truth. So scripture gives us stern and urgent warnings not to be deceived and not to be taken captive by the deceptive and deconstructionist philosophies, ideologies, and arguments which Satan is using to lead so many people astray, particularly our youth. What is the warning given in Scripture? 
Well, there's a poignant warning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it, the scripture says, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, right? It's going to come down at the end to who do you trust, the creator or the creation, God or men. Don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions which are based on the traditions of men, which are based upon the principles of this fallen world, and they are not based upon Christ. Don't build your house on the sand. Build it on the rock. There's a third method that Satan uses to deceive people, and that is superstition. Well, what is a superstition? It's a false supernatural belief. So both false religions and cults and the New Age movement and all the different spiritualistic uh, movements, they all fit the definition of superstition. If Satan fails to distract people from thinking about spiritual things, and if he can't deceive them through skepticism or sophistry, then he will try to direct their spiritual attention to a false religion, right? The distracted person, all of a sudden, something happens in their life, and they start thinking about spiritual things. So Satan tries to come in with deceptions, skepticism, well, that doesn't work. Sophistry, well, that doesn't work. Okay, now this person is heading in a spiritual direction. Satan is now going to present in front of him false teachers, false teaching, false religions. False religion is one of Satan's favorite tactics of deception. And the trick is to get the lie to be as close to the truth as possible while still leading people to hell. Right? So he's going to put in as much truth as possible while still having enough error to lead people to destruction. Satan loves to take the truth and twist it just enough to lead people down the broad road to destruction. His counterfeits look, sound, and feel like the real thing, but they are not. His false teachers look and sound like the real thing, but they are not. The poison pills of his false religions and false teachings have enough truth in them to make them look like the real thing, but they are not. And so we need discernment. We need to be alert and vigilant to test all things and hold on only to that which is good. What makes false religions and cults and false teachings so successful in accomplishing their diabolical purpose is that they are typically spread and propagated by people who look and sound like good and loving and caring and intelligent and moral and even pious people. Right? But this is why John says, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many antichrists and false teachers have gone out into the world so don't be naive. Just because someone is nice and eloquent does not mean they are teaching the truth. You need to be Bereans who even when Paul taught would check what he said against the scripture. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul pleads with the folks in Corinth. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Right? He's 
using, as it were, the illustration of walking a bride down the aisle to her groom. He says in verse 3, But I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you put up with it. He's saying don't put up with it. Down in verse 13 he says this, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. See, the Bible continually warns against the danger of false prophets and false teachers because they both attack the church and the truth from the outside and infiltrate it from the inside in order to discredit and twist the truth and to lead the folks away after themselves. You know, I want to give you just a taste of how often the scripture warns against false teachers, right? This is a small fraction of them, but let me just list a few references. We're warned against false teachers in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, in Jeremiah 14, in Jeremiah 23, Lamentations 2, Ezekiel 13, Micah 3, Matthew 7, Mark 7, Acts 20, Romans 16, Galatians 1, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, 2 Peter 2, 1 John 4, and in Jude. And that's just a fraction of the passages that warn against false teachers and tell us to be vigilant and alert and discerning so that we are not deceived. By the way, since the word of God gives such frequent warnings against heresy and false teachers, so do we from the pulpit. Our role is to declare the whole counsel of God and the word of God repeatedly and often warns against false teaching and so we do as well. And by the way, I realize that makes some of you really, really uncomfortable. There, whenever I address an issue and, and, and you know, point out that something is wrong or misleading or, or an error, you know, I'll often have someone come up and, and kind of give me the keep it positive preacher speech, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's usually, I mean, you know, they're really nice about it and they you know, kind of couch it in sanctimonious you know, language, but the real message is keep it positive preacher, right? And, and the the fear behind that is, look, if you say things are wrong, you're going to offend someone and drive them away, right? You're going to offend Aunt Hilda because she has this background or that background, or you're going to offend cousin so-and-so because they're involved in this sin or that sin. Just keep it positive, preacher, so that you don't drive anyone away. Now, look, it is true. I, I receive those reminders as a reminder, as the scripture says, that Bible teachers must be careful not to be bombastic, sarcastic, or harsh, to do hair splitting and such things. We are to speak the truth in love. But it is simply not true that it is loving, compassionate, or right to keep it positive. 
if what you mean by keeping it positive is leaving Satan's soul-destroying lies unrefuted, then I must demur. Those errors are like fish hooks which Satan uses to reel people into the fires of hell. And yes, if I try to pull the fish hook out of someone's mouth, it will hurt. And they will react like a fish does when you try to pull the hook out of its mouth. It it will shake and try to even get away from you, not realizing it's ensnared and you're trying to set it free. Once someone has taken the bait and chomped onto that hook of a soul-destroying satanic lie, it will be painful to remove the hook, to try to free them from that snare, but try we must because love demands it. That's why we preach against error. In the book of Titus, it tells us we can't just be positive. We also have to remove some hooks because they're there and people are suffering. Titus 1, 9 through 10 says that elders must be those who hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Right? I have a twofold task. I am to instruct in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Well, why? Why can't we just, you know, look, just teach the truth. Why do you have to refute error? It's really uncomfortable. I, look, it's uncomfortable for me too. Why? Why is it both? Why is it instruct in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict? And the answer is because those errors hurt people. Listen to what the next verse in Titus says, right? He says, you must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For, right, here's the reason. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, circumcision who must be silenced. Wow, boy, that's pretty harsh. You've got to silence these people. Why? Why so harsh? He says, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These false teachers get rich on the misery of people and on the broken homes of families. So they must be refuted and they must be silenced. So I have a sacred responsibility before the Lord to both instruct in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. If I tried to keep it positive, I would be neglecting half of my pastoral duty. And I wouldn't be teaching the whole counsel of God because as I mentioned in that list of texts, it's over and over and over in the word of God, these warnings against false teachers. If I omit those, I'm neglecting my duty. Satan uses atheistic skepticism, he uses humanistic sophistry, and he also uses religious superstitions spread by false teachers to lead people astray, and so we refute the false teachers. We must teach sound doctrine, and we must refute those who contradict it. That is not because we are unloving, it is because we realize that people are being reeled into the fire. And so in love and compassion, we have to reach with the word of God like, like pliers, grab onto the hook, and as gently as we can, pull it out of the mouth. 
and out of the heart. Well, there's a third major scheme of Satan that I want to talk to you about, and that is he seeks to destroy people with sin, with scandal, and with slander. If he can't distract them, and he can't deceive them, then he will get aggressive and simply try to destroy them. He will make a direct frontal assault on them. He will try to destroy them, and he will use sin, scandal, and slander to do so. Those are kind of the three kinds of attacks. If you like military history and strategy, you can think of sin as the frontal assault and scandal and slander as the flanking maneuvers. This is what he does when he attacks. And the attack we tend to focus on is the one that's most obvious. It's the frontal assault of sin, right? It's obvious, right? He tries to get people into life-dominating sin. It's just a direct attack on their soul, on their life. Peter warns us about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to these words. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And sometimes we'll have young people be like, you know, like, what's all this deal with like the church like preaching against sexual immorality and stuff? It's like, what, what's the big deal? It's just a bodily function and it's pleasurable and, and you know, it doesn't hurt anyone. Oh, really? What's the leading cause of abortion? Sexual immorality. This leads to the physical death of millions. The American Holocaust begins primarily with fornication. That's the reality. Not in all cases, of course, but in the majority. Does it hurt someone? Oh, yes, it hurts someone. The smallest, the weakest, the most innocent but it also hurts the person. Oh, well, you know, there's no risk of pregnancy because we use protection. What is mentioned in this verse there is no protection from? Listen to what it says. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust. Why? Because they wage war against the soul. Who gets hurt? You do. As well as whoever you're sinning with. Temptation to sin, though, is not the only way Satan attacks and destroys a person. Sometimes he doesn't attack you. He attacks someone near you. And particularly, he loves to attack those who are are in a position of spiritual leadership or influence. Why? Because he knows if you strike down the shepherd, it's easy to scatter the sheep. You know, we, even in our own military strategy and World War II would sometimes do what's called a decapitation strike where you would take out the leader, make it easier to defeat those who follow him. When a pastor, a parent, a personal mentor, someone else who's a spiritual example to you falls, it can be devastating. The falls of spiritual leaders are devastating to many, many, many others. When a parent falls into sin, the scandal devastates the children. When a pastor falls into sin, the scandal devastates the church. How many people have rejected the faith because of some scandal involving a pastor, a parent, 
or some other spiritually influential person. It's many. The field of battle is littered with corpses from this strategy, strategy of scandal. In the great hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, in the third stanza, stanza, the hymn writer prays, and he prays something that struck me as a young man. He says, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. He's saying, Lord, if you were to foresee that my love for you would grow cold and I would drift away or fall into some sin, I would rather you just take me home than to leave me to such a horrible fate. Make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. That's something I've prayed ever since the Lord called me into ministry over two decades ago. Sometimes people ask me, well, what are you afraid of? I'll tell you a few things I'm afraid of. I fear bringing shame on the name of Christ. I fear scandalizing his blood-bought bride, the church. And I fear these things more than death. And I pray I will always fear them more than death. And I think I should fear them more than death because that's exactly what the Bible tells me I should do. And James, you're going to listen to me now as I preach to myself. James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. There is a stricter judgment because of the influence, because of the responsibility. That's why the reformers who were men so brave they could stare down being burned at the stake, those same men would tremble when they came into the pulpit because they understood that what is really to fear is the stricter judgment of the Lord, not the wrath of men. And Jesus gives a warning as well. This is for me, it's for you as a parent, it's for anyone who has spiritual influence over another. Listen to what he says in Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, right? He had just beckoned a child and he told the disciples they had to be converted to become like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, right? This is the Lord's loving heart for children. He wants them to be received and welcomed by the church and nurtured by the church. But listen to what he says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. This is why I I agonize and fear for some of these spiritual leaders who have scandalized the gospel and scandalized the church. I don't know ultimately their spiritual destiny. I don't know their spiritual condition. But this should cause them to tremble. Better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. This is the Lord's warning. 
you're a parent, I want you to know that I take very, very seriously the responsibility I have to your children. I'm their pastor. I'm the one they see standing up here preaching the word of God. How dreadful it would be if I became ensnared in some sin and scandalized the church and therefore became a spiritual stumbling block to the precious children of our family. I would rather the Lord just take me home. So what do we do? Well, I can tell you what I do. I pray for the Lord's protection from the schemes of the devil. And I pray for his intervention if I ever begin to drift. Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Satan's most common method of destroying someone is simply tempting them to sin, but he also tries to destroy people by striking down the shepherds and by scattering the sheep through some despicable scandal. And oh, how our recent history is littered with the corpses, the spiritual corpses of the fallen. Take heed. Be warned. You know, if there's neither of those tactics work, if sin doesn't work and scandal doesn't work, Satan does have one last thing he tries, and that's slander. If Satan can't create a real scandal in the life of an individual, he'll create a fake one. If he can't create a real scandal in a family, he'll create a fake one. If he can't create a real scandal in a church, he'll create a fake one. He will use lies to accomplish the same thing that a real scandal does to dishonor the Lord and the gospel, to discredit the ministers of the gospel, to tear down the ministry of the church and of the believer. If he can't get someone to sin, he'll just get someone else to accuse them of that sin anyway. That's why the Bible warns against gossip and evil reports and about receiving slander and gossip and evil reports unless the facts have been verified. Gossip, evil reports, and slander are deadly in the life of an individual, in the life of a family, or in the life of a church. How many families have been torn apart by rumors? Two adult brothers or two adult sisters, and someone says that someone said or did something, and that is believed, and the relationship is destroyed, and oftentimes it's a half-truth at best. Beware of the deadly danger of slander. False and slanderous gossip can cause the same damage as real sin and real scandals. And the father of lies loves this because he's the father of what? Of lies. He loves slander. He loves gossip. He loves rumors because using them, he can trick people into doing two things, condemning the innocent and acquitting the guilty. He loves nothing more than when the guilty are acquitted and when the innocent are condemned. He wants to pervert justice. He wants lies to win and not the truth. That is why it is a Christian moral imperative that any accusation, whether legal or spiritual, be thoroughly investigated, the truth found out, and then the right response applied. Proverbs 17, 15 says this, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. He detests both. That's why scripture has 
strict standards of evidence and processes which the Lord commands us to follow. So when a church thinks, oh, we'll be so gracious, we'll sweep something under the rug, no. Right? There is a process that must be followed so that the truth is revealed. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will be revealed, and church discipline must follow. If there's legal issues, those must be implemented. That is the Lord's will. And that same process that ensures that the guilty are condemned also assures that the innocent are acquitted. Sometimes I tell people who think they're being falsely accused to appreciate the church discipline process because part of the church discipline process is a is confirming everything by the testimony of two to three witnesses. And so during the process, the truth comes out. The Lord ensures that it does. Satan is crafty. He's a schemer. So if he can't destroy a church with sin, he'll try to destroy it through scandal. If he can't destroy it through scandal, he'll try to destroy it through slander. And that is, by the way, why here at at Calvary, I just want to make sure the congregation knows, we are committed to both prevention and correction, right? Prevention and correction. Our primary goal is, uh, is, of course, to prevent the attacks of the enemy, right? That's why we have accountability structures in place. We have strict, multifaceted financial controls. It's why we have outside auditors double-check everything. It's why we do background checks on our staff and volunteers. And I, I appreciate people's patience, right? You want to volunteer for a ministry that has to do with children, you have to do a background check. It's not because we don't trust you. It's because we are committed to being vigilant. It is, we are committed to preventing wolves from coming in amongst the flock. We are committed to prevention, but we are also committed to correction. Should our preventative measures ever fail, we are committed to bringing impartial biblical correction via church discipline for serious unrepentant sin and by taking appropriate legal action in the worst case scenario of criminal behavior. Here, it is our goal that the innocent will not be condemned and the guilty will not be acquitted. The Lord commands this. I want to give you just one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Here's a church in Corinth, a terrible incestuous sin had been committed. And the church prided itself on how gracious they were being to the person involved. Paul writes them so strongly, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, right? If you don't stop sin, it will spread. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean at all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And again, that's in the context of the Lord's table. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges Then he concludes with this, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It's a command. You know, in the three years I've been at Calvary, I've been 
just so greatly blessed by the congregation's commitment to holiness. This is a church that is committed to holiness. And so the policies and the procedures which this church has had in place for many, many years preceding my arrival are ones that I have been just so blessed by and so blessed to see. But we're not unaware of Satan's schemes, and so we need to remain vigilant, and we need to pray. I want to ask the congregation, pray for the pastors. Pray for the elders. Pray for the deacons. Pray for the staff. Pray for the volunteers, that God would protect us from sin, protect us from scandal, protect us from slander. And then pray the same thing for yourself and for your family, for your spouse. Our time is up. We've seen three of Satan's most common schemes. It is to distract people with the superficial, the shallow, and the silly, to deceive people with skepticism, sophistry, and superstition, and to destroy people with sin, scandal, or slander. So what's the conclusion? What's the application? I want to leave you with an exhortation and an encouragement from 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to what he says. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert right? That's the application. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. This is not peacetime. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. That's the exhortation. Now here's the encouragement. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to ask the men to come. They're going to serve us the Lord's table. As they do, I want us to spend some time in reflection. Where have you not been vigilant? Where have you not resisted the devil? Make a renewed commitment to stand firm in your faith in that area. I want us also, as we are receiving the bread, to be reminded of that great encouragement. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a great spiritual battle, but we know who is the victor. And by grace, we're on his side and he on ours and come and serve.